1: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Christian Studies. I'm Crawford Gribben, host of the channel. Today we'll be talking to D. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Christian Studies. I'm Crawford Gribben, host of the channel. Today we'll be talking to D.G. Hart about some of his recent writing. Daryl, welcome to the show. Crawford, good to be with you. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you here. I've been reading your work for a number of years and admire so much of what you do. Um, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit at the beginning of the interview just about yourself. Well,
0: I I teach history at Hillsdale College, uh, which is in Michigan, um, the central part of the United States, flyover country, as some people know it. Uh, very small town. I've been here about eight years. Before that, I um, have worked in a number of venues. The Intercollegiate Studies Institute, which actually bears in some way on the the, the, the recent writing, um, we'll get into that. And then before that, I taught at uh, two seminaries, Protestant seminaries, Westminster, the one in Philadelphia, and the one in California. And I started my career teaching at Wheaton College in uh, Wheaton, Illinois. Um, did my Training at Johns Hopkins, graduate, uh, my PhD, did some seminary work at Westminster Seminary, Harvard Divinity School, and my undergraduate uh, misspent youth was at Temple University where I was a film studies major. Huh,
1: good. We might come back to the film studies stuff later on. Uh, But for now, you've done an awful lot of writing uh, over the course of your career. How many
0: books have you written altogether? Um, I'm not sure. We had guests this past Weekend, um, dropping their their um, eldest daughter off at college, and the spec they wondered if I had written fifteen. And between editing and writing, it's 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 at least that. So, um, and I I feel almost embarrassed to say that, and uh, I blame or listeners should blame Mark Knoll for this because. I, when starting out my career at Wheaton, I had known Mark before going to Wheaton, and he was a model for me, um, and so he writes a lot, so I need to write a lot. No, but he actually taught me uh, routines about writing and writing first thing in the morning, which I still do, and um, that, so I've been able to write just because I've been kind of anal about my schedule.
1: Huh. So you write every day? I, yes,
0: I try to. Oh, it's only three to four hundred words. I mean a page, page and a half. I get up at five in the morning, um and usually try to, to get in that writing before um the rest of the day begins so that by the time I arrive at, at the office um I feel like I've gotten <laughs> gotten a day's work worth of work in, at least for, for writing purposes. Of course that means I need to read it in the evenings to prepare for writing if I'm depending on the nature of the of the project.
1: We're going to talk about a couple of your most recent projects here, but in between these projects, you've also written a biography of H.L. Mencken. Can you tell us a little bit about your interest in Mencken? Because in some ways it feels a little bit different to your, um, preoccupation with religious history. And in fact, ironically, isn't the Mencken biography published in a religious biography series?
0: Yes. Um, so I went to Johns Hopkins, as I mentioned, which is in Baltimore. Um, And I did my dissertation on J. Gresham Machen, and in the course of reading about Machen and looking at um, the reception, the criticism, the the arguments about Machen during his lifetime, I came across H.L. Mencken, prominent journalist um, in the United States, literary critic, editor, newspaper and magazine, just an um, all-round – Writing, editing, genius—I would argue. So, that was sort of my first encounter with Mencken. Of course, living in Baltimore, his hometown, I also became familiar with him in other ways. So much so that now I'm the president of the Mencken Society, a small little organization that tries to keep alive uh, an interest in Mencken's writings. But, but he—he he actually got—he—he he understood Machen and listeners who aren't aware of both figures may confuse Machin and Mencken, but Mencken, the journalist, understood Machin, the Presbyterian uh, New New Testament scholar and fundamentalist. I thought Mencken actually understood Machin in ways that a lot of even Machin's Presbyterian colleagues did not. So I, I became aware of um Mencken's ability to grasp things that were going on in the religious world that a lot of people writing at the time, living at the time did not. So I was always intrigued by that and coming back to Mencken then and using this um, entry in this bi- biography religious biography series was a way for me to explore the religious side of him. Most of the admirers of Mencken admire him because he was such a critic of religion. He was an agnostic, self-proclaimed, but he was also modest enough to to think that he didn't know enough to say there was no God, so he was not an atheist. Maybe he was hedging his bets. Um, And so people, at least in the United States, celebrate Mencken as this person who who really gave it to Christianity hard. Um, but he actually – there was another side of him. He was I, – I argue and I think it's true that he was fascinated in a way by everything American, but it's also by religiosity in the United States. And um, he actually was much more sympathetic to certain religious figures than others, and I think trying to figure that out was what I – tried to do in the book, and I think I gave a pretty decent account of a side of Mencken's writings, which a lot of people have ignored. Now, even um, S.T. Joshi, I think is his name, a man who has edited a number of of, um, shorter collections of Mencken's writings, um, and I think himself is an atheist, and and he really admires Mencken, but he himself put together – a a collection of of Mencken's writings on religion. So people are aware of this. And again, it's not always slash and burn that you get from Mencken about religion. And for me as a believer myself, I think Mencken actually understands things about Christianity, the way Christians come across that I think is useful for people in the church to consider. So again, there are many reasons for Wanting to write about Mencken, but the most of all is I just think he um, – the biggest reason of all is Mencken is just such a great guy. I mean I really do. The more I, I read him, the more I, I um, teach on him or whatever, the more I, I admire him. I know he could be a son of a gun. I know he's not everyone's cup of tea, um, but – uh, he just had an, a, an amazing capacity for considering so many different subjects, a pro style that's amazing, a sense of humor that is, is always fun, and he was a great eater and drinker of things that I also like to do. I just wish he had cats. In, in one of the pieces he wrote about Machen, he, he said he, he put Calvinism in his cabinet of horrors but little removed from – Cannibalism, and sometimes when I use that line in class, I try to get students to imagine a cabinet of horrors, you know, sort of like um, the little maybe uh, closet that C.S. Lewis went through. But no, this is a this is a cabinet of horrors, and here Mencken has arranged things alphabetically, and of course alphabetically, Calvinism would be fairly close to cannibalism. Um, it's a great line, and I I, I mean I think. You know, given Mencken's um, premises, he's has every r- right to think that Calvinism is a is a difficult uh, intellectual project, uh, among other things that are difficult about it.
1: Fascinating, fascinating. Well, uh, it's significant, of course, that your subtitle for the Yale University book, twenty fifteen, Calvinism: A History, does not refer to cannibalism. Uh, <laughs> tell us a little bit more about what you're doing in this book.
0: Well. I um, – when the – and this this is again um, a debt I have to Mark Knoll, but I think the editors at Yale asked Mark if he would – wanted to write this book. They I think the editors at Yale um, have been putting out a, not, a lot of books about Reformation-related subjects of late because the 500th of 1517 – Happen, and other 500th anniversaries are coming up, so they wanted some coverage of this material, and I have to give Yale all sorts of credit because they do a lot of really good stuff on church history, religious history, historical theology, um, and I was really honored to be considered for this. Mark said he didn't want to do it, and he gave them my name, and they contacted me, so they it, – it was – a The way I conceived it originally, the way they kind of proposed it to me was a global history. Now what they meant by global really meant transatlantic, which was also fine even though I did try to include Asia and Africa and South America in parts where the – because Presbyterians and Reformed Protestants went everywhere around the world during the missions uh, enterprise, if not also colonialism. Um, So I was trying to just show how – Calvinism, although I think it's better to call it Reformed Protestantism because when you talk about Calvinism, you sort of exclude Zurich and Zwingli, and Zwingli, of course, was a Protestant 15 years or so before Calvin even converted or even showed up in Geneva, and I still remember a uh, 500th anniversary conference in Geneva back in – 2009 to commemorate Calvin's birth where the professor of church history from the University of Zurich was offended that people would call something Calvinism because Zurich had shouting rights over Geneva, um, even though the conference was being held in Geneva. So I I do think it's it's something of a misnomer to call it Calvinism, but anyway, Reformed Protestantism… I wanted to account for its rise in places like Zurich and Geneva and and Basel and that, that southern part of Germany and then how it spread to places like England, France, Scotland, the Netherlands, and then from there, once the Reformation sort of settles to show how – the great European migration, <clears throat> if you want to call it great, maybe it's only pretty good. Maybe it. Uh, people want to reevaluate that. But as Europeans went around the world in colonial and imperial exercises, Protestants went along with them, among them Reformed Protestants. And so I'm teaching, a course, this semester here at Hillsdale College on the Religious History of the United States. And I'm having students pay attention a lot in the first couple of weeks about how Christianity in the United States and Canada is really an export from European Christianity. People who've lived here for a while take the church life here for granted don't really recognize our debt to that. So I was trying to trace how Calvinism or Reformed Protestantism spread around the world from, you know, tracing it from the early 16th century down to
1: the 20th century. Thanks, Errol. If this religious movement is better known as Reformed Protestantism, how did it end up being called after Calvin?
0: Well, I think in the English-speaking world, um, thanks to the translation of Calvin into English in the 19th century by the society's name escapes me, um, there was one in Scotland that was particularly prominent, and you may be aware of this better than I am right now, uh, Crawford. Right. But I think there was another one too. Uh, I think there were a couple, one in Scotland, one in England that developed in the 19th century in the same way that that, um, Bach came back in music circles. Calvin came back in theological circles. And I think once – my understanding is that once that happened in the English-speaking world at least, Calvin became a lot more prominent um, as the go-to source for Reformed Protestantism. So, in the English-speaking world, it seems to me that Calvin really is that important. Whereas in maybe um, the, the French or Dutch or Scottish—I uh, mean, Scottish is English-speaking as well—but it's a com- it's a it's a complicated history actually, and it's not. That's part of what I was trying to get at as well, that each of these state churches that arise in Europe in the 16th and 17th centuries that then uh, migrate to places like North America, they wind up telling their own histories and having their own heroes and figures of prominence that aren't always the same. And and Protestantism, as everybody knows, isn't nearly as unified as Roman Catholicism, even though Rome maybe on the, these days doesn't look real real unified, but Protestantism never has been that unified. So each particular communion – and I really did try to pay attention, pay attention to institutional life, especially ecclesiastical institutions. Each of those institutions has their own history and, and figures of, of prominence so that even by the time you get to the 20th century – in the book, the the big major figures in different um, languages languages language speaking parts of the Reformed world, you have people like Thomas Chalmers for the Scots, who's a big who's a big figure in Presbyterianism in different parts of the world, non like Canada, Australia, even. But then you also have Abraham Kuyper in the Dutch-speaking parts of of the Reformed world, and that happens in South Africa, that happens in Canada, that happens in America as Dutch uh, Calvinists come to America. And then you have a figure like Karl Barth, who is a prominent figure in German-speaking territories and and will also make his appearance in the United States as as, uh, he's translated into English and becomes a – A prominent figure for the mainline Presbyterian churches here and then someone like J. gressa Machen, is also a prominent American who is not – who's in the mainline and then leaves the mainline. During the fundamentalist controversy, but he winds up also having a certain resonance with conservative or sectarian Presbyterianism in places like Brazil, in places like Korea, in places like Canada even. Uh, there's a, there's a, a kind of trickle-down effect from from these figures. And again, um, Calvin is still there in the background as are people like uh, Bootser, as are people – Oh, like um, Knox, but then as these contemporary figures lead institutions uh, or later figures lead institutions, they wind up taking on a character of their own and become prominent in their own right.
1: What was Calvin like as an individual?
0: It's hard for me to say. I mean it seems like to to me um, he's much less fun than Luther. Uh, I think everybody sort of agrees with that. Incredibly hardworking. Um, I don't – sense a kind of whimsy in Calvin that I wish I did. He could be incredibly clear and straightforward, all things which are good and, again, incredibly disciplined. Um, But um, if you wanted to sit down and have a a beer with somebody, Luther obviously was your guy. Um, And and I know there have been many efforts to try to humanize Calvinism – I mean Calvin, and as well as Calvinism, um, and uh, it, it seems like even if you have to try to do that, uh, it says something about the man himself. I mean, I've read a couple of biographies, and um, you know, I think he suffered from the flaws that of most that most people do. He, he didn't always take criticism well. He wanted to make sure things ran well and wanted to control things. Maybe he was a bit, little bit of a helicopter pastor, um, but also just you know incredibly productive. I mean, obviously, Luther wrote a lot. Uh, Calvin wrote a lot, and that's one of the reasons why I think historical figures wind up um, making their den and, and continuing to be have an influence is if you have a, this body of literature behind you, people are going to have something to sink their teeth into, which is why the Calvin studies, the Luther studies, the Edward studies, the Owen studies to which you yourself have contributed uh, keep going on because there are so many writings that people can go back to.
1: It's really interesting that you end that comment with a list of individuals because I suppose one of the things that your book is arguing is that institutions matter more than individuals. Is is, is there a tension in writing the history of this kind of religious movement between these two impulses, recognising the sometimes extraordinary contribution that individuals can make? while also recognizing that this is an ecclesiastical history, isn't it? This this is a history of institutions. This is Calvinism not as a mood or a spirituality or even as a set of ideas, although that plays into the institutions. But fundamentally, this is an institutional history of Calvinism.
0: Right, right. I think that's – I think as a historian, I think institutions are – Really important in part because it makes a historian's job a little bit easier to figure out the people who belong to an institution or are associated with it and then you can kind of – that sets the the framework. It gives you boundaries for what you're going to do if it's just people who hold liberalism in common, political liberalism, economic liberalism however, or another kind of uh, range of ideas that they have in common or they have a certain affection for a certain writer. Um, it's really hard to get your arms around a project like that. Institutions do help do that, but I also think institutions are important because of membership. being Belonging to something, even as thin as the ties may be, it still gives some kind of identity to the people who belong to an institution. Now, on the other side, I mean my, one of my disappointments I think with the book is that it hasn't re- – been read as much as I would have liked it to. Of course, every author thinks that, but I do think one of the one of the aspects that people readers struggle with in the book is that it is institutional, and most your average readers, but even extraordinary readers, if I could put myself in that camp, meaning lay readers versus professional historians, still like biography because with biography history comes alive in a way. That it doesn't come alive with institutional history, but in the case of this book, it's not just <laughs> just the history of general assemblies or synods and those kinds of decisions, which can get, <clears throat> excuse me, a little uh, tedious at times. But it, it, it's also paying attention to institutions. In this case, is a way to pay attention or to figure out how. Calvinism or Reformed Protestantism actually migrated to these places, and usually the way it migrated from – southern Europe to northern Europe to the British Isles to North America to, to Africa to South Africa was through institutions, whether church institutions, um, <clears throat> mother churches and daughter church relationships between the old world and, and the new world or later on missionary enterprises that sent out people under the umbrella of either the missions agencies of denominations or even the parachurch missionary organizations themselves. So again, it's uh, institutional history, it seems to me, is really useful for trying to trace those uh, patterns, those links uh, around the world that sometimes keep those churches united. But eventually, even in the case, say, of North America and Europe, um, those ties grow grow thin and weak such that, The Presbyterians in the United States, the mainstream Presbyterians, the English speaking ones, really don't pay that much attention to Scottish or Irish Presbyterians the way they once did. Although I think in Canada, for instance, where there is much more of a tie because of politics to the British Isles, um, that there's more attention to what happens in Canada and what happens in Scotland and Ireland, though my perception is that that is also beginning to thin out. Um, Dutch Calvinism in the, in the United States, for instance, still a lot of attention, I think, that the Dutch churches uh, pay to what happens in the Netherlands and in South Africa, for instance. Um, so again, those those uh, connections are, are still there, but they do thin out over time.
1: Interesting. Um, As I was reading through your book, I was thinking of that Time magazine front cover back in 2009, I think it was, 10 ideas that are changing the world right now, and one of those listed in the front cover of Time was the new Calvinism. So I I was wondering, as I read through the work, whether as Calvinism moved into North America, it became institutional in different ways, because... What we might see in North America is not so much strong denominational organizations but strong parachurch organizations, often linked to evangelical subcultures uh, in, in a way that perhaps your book doesn't find tremendously comforting or hopeful, would that be fair to say?
0: Right. Well, I mean, and that's part of my own bias as someone who is both a um, historian and a uh, a church officer um although I do think it's okay for um, uh, personal identity like church membership to inform scholarship I mean it's impossible in some ways to keep them separated but I also think that I've had a fruitful um, set of reflections on uh, historical subjects thanks to my own uh, background in in the church um, even though I think you know, Church history has really fallen on the wayside among religious historians in the United States. And I mean, there are other, we could talk about that for a long time, and I don't think we want to go down that trail. But the, the rise of parachurch organizations like, um, like, say, the Gospel Coalition, which I think is oftentimes associated with the new Calvinism, um, it does point to the problems again of how to identify Uh, Who's in? Who's not in? What counts as Calvinism? What doesn't? One of the books on the new Calvinism uh, that came out soon after that article, if not around the time of the article, um, made the point that basically the new Calvinists were at best three-point Calvinists instead of five-point Calvinists, five-points people would try to trace back to the Synod of Dort in in 1619 in the Dutch churches. Total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints, the so-called tulip. Um, and, you know, just doing intellectual history or theological history, um, you, you wonder why you would call this, I mean, I guess you, the, the prefix new or neo, Uh, Would suggest that it is something different from the old Calvinism if you only have three of the five points. I mean what the new Calvinism seems to emphasize a lot is the sovereignty of God. Um, But anyway, it does again point to this. A much squishier side of things and trying to actually tell the history of that sort of Calvinism is much more difficult. And I also think, though, that it's a little flashier. It's a little bit easier to find online than, say, the denominations that already exist out there that do have – um, regular meetings, they have minutes, they have documents, they have all sorts of things that historians can pay attention to. Um, and, and, in some ways are, are, uh, easier to, um, assess in that, okay, this, there's something final and resolute about what this particular communion is up to. Whereas if you look at a parachurch organization, it's not always clear. And as, say, for instance, the Gospel Coalition now comes to a point where its founding members are retiring from active careers and they're now in retirement. They still you know write or participate in Gospel Coalition endeavors, but still, what's the next stage going to be? It's similar to what happens to the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association, for instance, when Billy Graham retires. Well, what do you do? Is, there, is, is Frank Franklin Graham isn't the guy, a lot of people – I mean he has his own set of institutions. But when you're so dependent on a, on a certain group uh, of, of prominent figures or celebrity pastors as it were, it's really hard to know what's going to come next. And this isn't just for church life. This is for uh, broadcasts, um, the Prairie Home Companion, a public radio show here in the United States. Uh, that Garrison Keillor started. Now that Garrison Keillor has stepped down, I haven't listened to the show now probably for two years, Um, and I guess it's still going on, but it's hard to replace that kind of figure, which is again why institutions seems to me are in some ways more useful for perpetuating a set of ideas, a set of practices, uh, not simply from continent to continent, but also from age to age. I'm not sure if that answers the question you uh, asked, but I filled up a lot of time.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's always important. Daryl, you've been been very candid about your own um, personal position vis-a-vis your subject matter. And I suppose that becomes clearest in the other book that we want to talk about today, uh, which is Still Protesting Why the Reformation Matters, which has literally just been published by Reformation Heritage Books Two thousand and eighteen uh, is your choice of publisher a clue as to what that book is all about
0: Yes it would it Reformation heritage um, publishes serious books but it would not uh, c- i don't think be ranked as a uh, an academic press people who write for it are oftentimes academics but they're also writing in a style as I did in this book that isn't something you would write for a university press or a trade press, uh, a a non-religious trade press. Uh, This is a kind of trade press. But um, so yes, I mean this is a work that that uses a lot of history um, to make arguments about um, the differences between Protestants and Roman Catholics and why those differences uh, still matter even 500 years later. In my own particular um, background I think is – I've been thinking about Roman Catholicism now for 15 years because I've worked at institutions first, the Intercollegiate Studies Institute, an academic nonprofit kind of para-academic institution in Wilmington, Delaware that runs a lot of lectures and conferences programming as supplements to college and university education in the United States primarily for undergraduates and it's a conservative politically conservative organization but that also tries to keep alive uh, the great books the great thinkers of the of the West and now I teach at Hillsdale College which is does that in its curriculum we have a great books uh, light sort of core curriculum, and in both places I have worked with a number of Roman Catholics, but many of whom were Protestants and then became Roman Catholic. And I, I just hadn't paid much attention to Roman Catholicism, contemporary Roman Catholicism before I started working with so many former Protestants, now Roman Catholic. So I had to try to think about what these people saw in Roman Catholicism. Um, what was I missing? Was there something there that I should be thinking about? That I should be drawn to as as a Christian? Was there was there a claim there upon me? And so, um, and I also then began to think about which is part of another project. But but the the, the place of Roman Catholics in in American conservatism. Um, and so it wound up being. Um, I think, very intriguing and and, uh, provocative in my own intellectual development and historical interests. So that's part of the reason why I wrote this book uh, was to try to answer some of the objections to Protestantism by Roman Catholics. So even though it might sound like it's it's directed against Roman Catholicism, but it's also directed against those people who have left Protestantism for Roman Catholicism. So it's – you know, they were shooting stuff at me, saying, "You know, you really should be a Roman Catholic in some way." And this is trying to an, uh, trying to answer why uh, um, that's not the case.
1: Why do you think, uh, as you just mentioned, Catholics have been so prominent in American conservatism? The best I can do is that
0: um, modern uh, society, particularly the United States, after the 1960s, if you want, that's a cliche in a way to talk about the, so, the social uh, f- um, uh, disorder, chaos, revolution, whatever the changes that have happened in the United States and in Europe at the West more generally since the 1960s. But um, if you're trying to resist some of those tra- changes, trying to hold on to earlier forms of <clears throat> family life um uh, social life um, especially institutions I- engage with passing on traditions to the next generation. Uh, you begin to look for ways to to keep, hold on to tradition and of course, Roman Catholicism emphasizes tradition in ways that Protestantism does not, um, and so it seems to me if you want to hold on to the history of the West, the institutions of the West, it looks like Roman Catholicism. Places you better, closer there to to the sources of stability in the West than uh, Protestantism does. So, although of course, um, at times the history of modern Roman Catholicism that would be after say 1600, it's been so reactionary that it. Um, I'm thinking of the papacy in the 19th century, especially after the French Revolution, that um, that's not necessarily the most stable uh, institution either, or stable option for the West, um, since it was much more digging in its heels against what the what was developing instead of coming alongside in some way and trying to appropriate, accommodate what was happening. But still, I think that's a that's a big part of the appeal. So you know, you read Aristotle, you read Plato, you read Augustine, you read Aquinas, and and I do this with my students here at Hillsdale, and I can understand why Protestants who come here and read those sources they're thinking, well, wait. My people really don't start until the the 16th century, so maybe to recover that earlier stuff, it it means going back to an age prior, Christianity prior to the Reformation. And I think that's part of it. I don't don't mean to um, demean that that kind of conversion by putting it that way, but it does seem like that's part of the reason why um, Protestants become Roman Catholic and also the the kind of – the link between Roman Catholicism and conservatism or traditionalism.
1: Interesting. This this book, um, Still Protesting While the Re- Why the Reformation Matters, is very much applied history, isn't it? It's historical, but it's history in the service of certain kinds of arguments. Um, what, what kind of guidance would you give to aspiring historians who want to write historically, in service of a particular set of personal commitments, I guess I would say
0: I would just encourage them to do it, um, Of course, finding a publisher and editor willing to do it is is part of the trick, and also being at a stage in your career where you have um, uh, job securities, meaning tenure oftentimes, is another trick to it. Um, you can't do that early on, too early on, as a um, as a scholar or as aspiring scholar, without perhaps branding yourself. So, so that that's another consideration. But I I do sometimes become frustrated with the profession, and I I really do love historical inquiry, and I, I admire my colleagues in the field. But I have noticed, in especially say going back to the Calvinism book, trying to just find a good overview of Puritanism in New England or even in Massachusetts was really hard to do because historians are trained, especially in graduate school, to put together five or six chapters of deep investigation into a particular topic, but it's hard to find the narrative that keeps those chapters together. Um, You can find the narrative perhaps in the introduction or the conclusion, but I think in teaching undergraduates at least, what makes history usually come alive – and you see this especially in the in the popularity of biographies – what makes history comes alive, come alive is a story. And I wish historians were better at telling stories. And oftentimes, to go back to your question, the, using history to make a point, you can also oftentimes make a point in some ways better with a particular figure. In that way, so telling the story of a figure also oftentimes means telling, making a particular point about that story as well. So, um, I, I guess it's a plea for going ahead and, and writing um, history that can be applied uh, and making points, and not simply. Um, getting bogged down in the minutiae that is really necessary and important to historical investigation. And I, don't, I think going to graduate school, writing a dissertation, those are really important skills to learn. Um, but then also thinking about an audience and ways that an audience can resonate with history is also a really important skill to learn.
1: Darrell, we've taken up a lot of your time. Can you tell us briefly what you're working on at the moment? Well, I've just finished
0: uh, revisions to a manuscript. I'm not obsessed with Roman Catholicism, but since I've been um, working with Roman Catholics and conservatives or Roman Catholics who are political conservatives for a while, I've got a book in a series that I co-edit at Cornell University Press on religion and politics, and this is going to be on… Roman Catholics and political conservatism or even exceptionalism, American exceptionalism from, say, 1950 to 1995 or so. Basically, figures um, – the prominent figures are here are William F. Buckley and Richard John Newhouse It's um, kind of the bookmarks of this period. And so that book – is somewhere in the works now. And then um, I'm also working on a spiritual biography of Ben Franklin for a series uh, for Oxford University Press, which is also a lot of fun. Um, Franklin is a figure somewhat like Mencken in that he was not um, uh, conventionally religious, um, but he was surrounded by all sorts of believers and religious institutions and had to make his way in that world and also figure out new philosophical ideas. And he was a man, again, like Mencken. I don't want to read Mencken into Franklin, but who just seemed to be fascinated by so many aspects of human existence and was active. Franklin especially was active in so many of them, civic organizations, inventions, diplomacy, politics, um, publishing. It's, It's just a remarkable figure, and I'm glad to be working on it.
1: And he loved George Whitfield, which almost makes it, <laughs> well, maybe it does. Okay, there you go. I have to check your definition again. <laughs> well, Daryl, that sounds like um, a couple of great projects. I'm looking forward to seeing them. Thanks for being on the show today. Take care. Talk to you soon. Thanks, Robert.